You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 4, if you have your Bibles with you this morning. Uh, while you're getting settled there, finding your place, let me uh, mention a couple of things. You may have caught the fact that Griff referred to as our old sanctuary as the classic sanctuary. Um, that's a very nice way to put it, I think. Uh, it is well-worn. We're trying to eke every bit of life out of it that we can. Uh, here's the thing you need to know. Griff had a birthday this past week. It was like a big one. Turned the big 5-0. So if you haven't wished classic Griff a happy birthday yet, be sure that you do that after uh, the service. Uh, he's not quite as worn as the sanctuary across the street. Uh, I often say I wouldn't mind being called middle-aged if I knew more people that were 100 years old. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, but uh, no, we're so thankful for Griff and appreciate, uh, of course, all that he does here and has done. Uh, really, over half of his life now has been right here, and so uh, we're thankful for that. Uh, let me also mention uh, just real quickly how important your giving is. Uh, that, you know, we used to say that there were seasons in uh, church life that were uh, maybe a little less busy than other times. We can't find those times anymore, okay? It just seems like we just go from one busy season to the next, and especially with uh, a building under construction and all that that brings, um, there's just always a lot going on. But uh, this is a, a critical time in the life of our church as we enter into the summer season with camps and missions trip and VBS and all of those things. So your giving is uh, incredibly important, and while we don't do uh, a traditional offering plate here each week, it is important that you are faithful in your stewardship and in your giving. And I will tell you that uh, the month of February is one of the first months in a good while uh, that our giving was just slightly below what our budget needs are. And I don't say that to alarm you uh, because uh, giving in church life kind of has some ebbs and flows to it and all of that. There are months where the giving uh, exceeds uh, the budgetary needs. But uh, I, just a reminder that your giving is critically important. And there are a number of different ways for you to do that. Many of you, most of you, I think, give online. Uh, you give regularly that way, but there's an offering box out here in the foyer on your way out. And uh, that all is really for our First Baptist family. And uh, so when we, uh, when we unite together as a church family here, we are saying, hey, we are adopting this budget. We adopt an annual budget, and we are saying we uh, are going to support this budget uh, so that God can continue to do the work that he has been doing here for many, many years uh, in our Van Alstine community. So uh, thank you for that. Well, I love this time of year. Uh, I love March Madness, and I hope that uh, it hasn't driven you to madness yet. Uh, I was going to ask some of you about your bracket this morning, but I feel like it may be too soon. Um, I won't mention any uh, schools or anything in that, but I, you know, yeah, we, that, some of you are really excited about your bracket right now. I understand. Uh, I get that. Uh, and so, uh, but I love this time of year. I love uh, the, the promise of warmer temperatures and more sunshine and longer days. I love the start of baseball season and and all of those things. We have a lot to look forward to. I was just over late this last week over at the new property, and uh, they have a ladder thing kind of set up there. I was able to climb up onto the second floor. Uh, it's all decked out now up there, so you can uh, actually walk around a little bit, and it was cool to, uh, uh, to look back, and you can kind of see the city of Van Alstine, and it's just a cool vantage point, and to see all that God is doing. So exciting days ahead for sure. Uh, and uh, thankfully, uh, God is guiding us through this entire season. It's an exciting time. 
Well, John chapter 4, we're continuing through the gospel of John this morning in our current sermon series called Person of Interest. And here in chapter 4, we've been here for several weeks now, we've been looking at a conversation, uh, what we've called really a divine appointment between Jesus and an unnamed uh, Samaritan woman at Jacob's Well in Sychar, a town in Samaria. Last week, we saw the results of this conversation. Uh, Samaritans coming to faith in Jesus through the testimony of the Samaritan woman. And Keegan just a few moments ago kind of read the the connection piece between where we were last week, where we're going to be this week. And we saw that many uh, Samaritans came to faith in Jesus. Uh, What what a great, great testimony uh, of God's faithfulness and God's goodness in drawing people to himself. And so we're going to pick it up now in verse 43 and read down through the end of chapter 4 this morning. So I hope that you'll follow along there. As I read, it says, After the two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew. (laughs) He starts connecting the dots. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea. To Galilee. As I often do, I want to ask you a question as we get started this morning, and that's simply this What is true faith? I suspect most of us would say that we are people of faith. Uh, Again, you're in a worship service. Um, Maybe there are times and occasions in your life where you've said, Man, I really had to trust God and I had to exhibit some faith. I had to take a bold step of faith, maybe, uh, at a particular time. But what is true faith? And how much of that true faith do we need? You ever been deeply disappointed in someone? You ever trusted someone only to have that person violate your trust and let you down? And I think about how, how did you feel when that happened? If you've ever had that experience, and I suspect that you have, then you know that faith is fundamentally trust. It's trust. And most of us have learned the hard way that placing our trust in human beings is often risky business. People are sinful and weak and unreliable, and they tend to break their promises and fail to keep their commitments. In fact, if we're completely honest today, we know that not only have we been disappointed by others, but we ourselves have been a disappointment to others. Because we've overcommitted ourselves and then dropped the ball, or we've had the best of intentions but forgotten or failed to keep our commitments. We have even at times perhaps been purely selfish and inconsiderate and have let people down as a result. 
Today's passage is an exploration of faith in Jesus Christ, trust in Jesus Christ, and continuing uh, from this, uh, th- this exploration from the end of the story of Jesus' encounter with this woman at the well of Samaria and the people of Sychar, when it comes to faith in Jesus, many people wonder if they have enough faith and how they can get more. In fact, in Luke's gospel, chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, we find these words. It says, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So for the disciples, the issue of concern was the amount of their faith. They're thinking that it's something that's, that's quantitative, that you can measure naturally. And so they wanted more faith. Uh, that was, it was the amount of their faith that was of concern. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their request because they were right to seek more faith and to ask Jesus for it. He is the author and the finisher of our faith, Scripture tells us. And the apostles knew that they could not just produce their own faith. And yet for Jesus, the question was not whether or not they had enough faith, but whether or not their faith was genuine and living. Even a very small amount of genuine living faith would be more powerful than they could possibly imagine. That was the point of Jesus' response there. His response had to be both encouraging and challenging to them at the same time. And today we see the true and saving faith of the Samaritan inhabitants of Sychar contrasted with really what is a false and self-centered faith of the Galileans. And then we also see a royal official come to true faith in Jesus Christ. And his false faith is graciously met by Jesus with a powerful word that leads to true faith and salvation for not only himself, but for his household. Let's unpack the text here. As we look at verses 43 through 45, I want you to notice a false faith. And we see that in the Galilean welcome of Jesus. Jesus reminded, uh, it remained in, in Sychar there for a couple of days, we're told, long enough to see many people come to believe in him, but not so long as to uh, deter him from his primary mission field at that time and his calling among the Jewish people. And so after two days, Jesus leaves Samaria and he heads north to Galilee. Now in verse 44, we find a verse of scripture that is sometimes confusing. So I want us to look at that briefly, this confusion of verse 44. John here, he inserts a a parenthetical comment. In most of your Bibles, you see it in parentheses. It's a parenthetical comment that can be a little bit confusing. Matthew and Mark, in their Gospels, they both record Jesus saying these words. A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. In those Gospels, Jesus says these words in response to the unbelief of the Galileans who can't accept the fact that Jesus, uh, someone from their own hometown, Jesus as the Messiah, they just can't seem to wrap their minds around that because they know his family. And it seems unbelievable that their local carpenter's son should be the son of God. I experienced this a little bit earlier in my ministry. I I had grown up in a church in the Metroplex here uh, that is now in Flower Mound. And um, I left there to go north to the shores of Lake Erie where I did my college work and my seminary work. And I came back to that church where I'd grown up as their associate pastor. And quite frankly, some people kind of had some difficulty with that. It wasn't anything personal, 
But they had just known me from the time that I was junior high Mike. You know, they had gone to my high school basketball games and, and all those things. And now I'm one of their spiritual leaders. And now I'm in the pulpit sometimes and I'm preaching and I'm teaching. And, and I was taking a, a spiritual leadership role in, in their lives. And so they, they found it difficult to see me in that role a little bit. Sometimes I thought, well, maybe it's because they know too much about me. I don't know. Uh, you would hope and think that they would say, man, it's just the grace of God that he's even up there doing this right now, you know? I uh, probably thought at one point or another I'd be in the state penitentiary. But it, it, the, the truth is I experienced that just a little bit. And so I'm sure it was hard for some of these people to think as they're longing for, looking for uh, the Messiah, to think that it's, it's going to be somebody like from our town. Like we know, we know the family. I mean, it's just our local carpenter's son. And, and, and so th that's the point I think that we're seeing here. And in John's gospel, we're told that Jesus leaves for Galilee because Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So Jesus is intentionally choosing to go someplace where he knows he will not be honored. That seems strange enough on its own. But then in verse 45... We find that the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. So I think we have to consider the irony of verses 43 through 45, with that 44th verse right there in the middle. Seems like John inserts that parenthetical comment of verse 44, so we don't misunderstand the nature of the kind of welcome that Jesus received in Galilee. Jesus, you've got to remember, he made a big splash in Jerusalem. Remember, he had driven out the money changers. He had driven out the animal sellers. Uh, uh, he had apparently done some other miracles that are not recorded in John's gospel. That's based on what Nicodemus said to him in John chapter 3, verse 2, where he said, uh, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Uh, so the hometown boy had gone to the capital city and made a name for himself. And he's now returned home. And so there's a level at which he's kind of celebrated, you might say. The people of Galilee, however, understand this. I don't, I don't believe they're welcoming Jesus because they believe in him and want to follow him as Messiah, but because they are hoping to see some miracles and have him do some great stuff for them. This is ironic in contrast to the Samaritans of Sychar. The people of Sychar had incomplete scriptures, remember? They didn't accept all of the Old Testament. They had a confused theology, no history with Jesus, and yet they welcomed him to listen to him, believed in him as the Savior of the world. Jesus didn't have to do any amazing miracles really to impress them other than his supernatural knowledge of the Samaritan woman's past. And here in his hometown area, where people had the scriptures, had a history with Jesus, they were not welcoming him in order to hear his word and believe but only to see some great miracles and to be blessed or entertained, you might say. Certainly there was some buzz around Jesus. And throughout his earthly ministry, there were people who truly believed, and there were others who just wanted to see what he could do. It's, it's not unlike people in our culture in our day. There are people who want enough of a relationship with Jesus, or they want to be into Jesus enough simply because of what he can do for them. Think about how bizarre it would be for Christy and I when we were first dating for me to say to her, man, you know, I'm really not so interested in a relationship with you, but I'm really into like what you could do for me. Like how you could like set up a home and keep the house clean and provide meals for me. And I mean, I don't think that'd be really acceptable to her, right? Like she doesn't want to have that kind of a relationship with me where it's just about what she can do for me. 
And yet if some people were completely honest, they would have to say that that's kind of their relationship with Jesus. They're really more into what Jesus can do for them than they are in having a relationship with him. And so uh, they don't want Jesus, the Savior of the world. They want Jesus, the amazing miracle worker. That's not honoring Jesus, and it's not real faith. And then I want us to notice in verses 46 through 49 what I would call a weak faith. And we see that in the Gentile official. The text here again says this. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down, heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So what we see here, I believe, is an initial false faith. Jesus enters Cana, the scene of his first sign, even though the sign was done privately and primarily for the benefit of his disciples. John reminds his readers of the miracle here because word of this wonder had most likely spread throughout the area. After all, the servants who filled the water jars that day drew out the wine. I, I, I doubt that they could keep that, that, that secret. Um, and certainly they had been talking about it. Perhaps others that were there at the wedding uh, would have been talking about this. And so meanwhile in Capernaum, a royal official, someone who served in the court of Herod Antipas, who was the, the Tetrarch of Galilee, had a son who was severely ill. A sickness that we're told here was heading toward death. It's about 16 miles from Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee to Cana, which lies to the west of Galilee. The terrain, very hilly. If you've ever been in that region, you know what I'm talking about. So it's, it's not an easy journey, but the official is desperate. And so he sets out to see Jesus at once. The desperation of this official is like he's, he's kind of grasping at anything. He's reached a point of desperation. And so uh, this possibility of, of this individual who's been healing and doing some of these things uh, would maybe perhaps help his son. So he comes to Jesus, asks him, asks him to come down to his house and heal his son. At that point, he doesn't seem to have any real faith in Jesus or any understanding really of who he is, or he would have approached him with more humility and been better received by Jesus. His request that Jesus come down and heal his son is marked more by a presumption than by faith. So initially, this official is no different from the rest of the Galileans, wanting Jesus, the miracle worker, to do a miracle for him. But in the midst of that, I want you to notice the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus. Jesus responds to this official's false faith and presumption with a gracious rebuke. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's the old, the old adage of, I ain't going to believe it until I see it. Okay? This rebuke is gracious because Jesus is taking the time to show the official what he really needs. And that is faith. And, and what he's, he's, he's settling for instead is signs and wonders. And while we often want signs and wonders from Christ, what we really need is faith in Christ. Again, it's not about just what Jesus can do for us. Many people have been disappointed in God because God did not answer a prayer of theirs in a particular way. Sometimes their stories are heartbreaking. But a faith in God, which depends on a specific answer to a specific prayer request, is not a real and saving faith. 
real and saving faith confesses that Jesus is Lord and comes to Jesus for salvation, for forgiveness, and for redemption. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this question. It says, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And the answer there is, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. So there are three things in that that are worth noting and are very important here. Faith is saving grace. It's something which comes from God, given freely, not because we deserve it, but because God delights to give it. Faith is centered in the person of Jesus Christ receiving and resting upon him alone. And faith is for salvation as offered in the gospel. So we look to Jesus, receive, rest upon him for salvation, for forgiveness and redemption, not for specific answers to prayer requests for things, even good things. So Jesus is being gracious because he's telling the official, all those who were listening there that day, what they really need and what's keeping them from it. It's as if they're addicted to signs and wonders. And they're missing the eternal life in the kingdom of God that is standing right in front of them. This, this is a primary text that you could go to when you're talking about the prosperity gospel. The name it, claim it movement. Okay? The official responds to Jesus' rebuke with more humility and an earnest plea. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. Now, all the major English translations uh, render the official's response as sir, which is, I think is a valid tr translation. It uses the word kurios in the original language. That same word means lord and master. So it's a term of respect and deference. Many of you are old enough, like, like me, to have been taught in your, in your formative years the importance of saying yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir. And you were taught that that was a matter of respect, right? It, it, what, it was really odd for me in my coming back to my home church, okay? Because I, I was now ministering to people. I was in a position, in a sense of spiritual authority in their lives as one of their pastors. Okay? But yet there were people in that church that I could never, even in that relationship, refer to them by their first name. I, I just couldn't make myself do it. <laughs> I, and there's still people to this day that, crazy enough, they're not that much older than me, but I still just can't call them by their first name. There's just something about it. Well, this term is one such term. It seems from the language used here that the official has gone from trying to, to get something from Jesus, really, kind of order Jesus around to respectfully and urgently respect, or requesting his presence. So the grace of Jesus has humbled him, and so in response to the official's newfound humility, Jesus says, go, your son will live. And that's where I want us to look at verses 50 through 54, where we find a saving faith in response to the word. It says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him, told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. His father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And as a result, he himself believed and all of his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. 
So let's talk about faith in the word of Jesus. The official is now faced with a real faith challenge. Jesus is not going to come down. He's not going to come to his house. But he assures the man by his word that his son will live. Jesus doesn't even say here, go, I have healed your son. But simply, go, your son will live. The official receives this word from Jesus and believes. Specifically, we're told the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Now that's important because in in Paul's writing to the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 10, he tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God, the word of Christ. The word of Christ is both the means of bringing faith to us and the test of whether or not we have faith. So when the word of Christ comes to us accompanied by the saving grace of the Holy Spirit of God, it produces faith and we demonstrate the reality of that faith when we believe in the word. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatever is revealed in the word. Because of the authority of God himself speaking in it, he he responds differently to, to what each particular passage contains. Where we find ourselves striving in every way to obey the commands, trembling perhaps at the threatenings. It's the old hear and fear concept of Scripture. Embracing the promises of God for this life and for that which is to come. The evidence that the official believes in the word of Jesus is that he leaves and goes on his way home. He obeys Jesus' command to go. He doesn't argue with Jesus. He doesn't try to talk him into doing something that he feels like maybe he needs to do in that moment. It is apparently late enough in the day that he spends the night either in Cana or along the way to Capernaum because he meets up with his servants the next day who tell him that his son is recovering. I wonder, as I studied this text, I couldn't help but stop many times over and ask myself, how do I respond to the word of God? As I read it in my own quiet time, as I prepare sermons, as I teach others, As I encounter the Word of God, how do I respond to the Word of God? Does the seed of the Word produce the life of faith in me that it should? Does the life of faith bear the fruit of obedience? When you hear the Word, do you believe? If you truly believe, do you respond in obedience? And that's where we then see saving faith in the person of Jesus. So the official's uh, faith in the word of Christ, it was not misplaced. Christ had said uh, that his son would live, and his son was recovering and would live. Even more, the grace of Christ was so specific that he chose to heal the son at the exact same time that he spoke to the official. This gave the official unmistakable support for his faith, confirmation that trusting in the word of Christ was right. Now, what is the relationship between faith and evidence? These are conversations that are becoming far more frequent in our culture. What's the connection? What's the relationship between faith and evidence? And you'll encounter people who will say, I'm not believing it because I can't see it. I can't get God all figured out. I can't, I, can't, I can't make sense of some of this. And until I can figure it all out in my mind that I'm not going to believe, I need to see the evidence. So what's the relationship between faith and evidence? 
Well, if you are believing God until God proves himself to you beyond a reasonable doubt, then you will perhaps be waiting for a long time. You've got to understand this. God is not an on-demand circus performer doing tricks to win your confidence. But if you are trusting in Christ for salvation, then I firmly believe God will strengthen and confirm your faith with evidence. Because I believe in God, I find much evidence to support my faith in the works of creation and in providence. I see the handiwork of God in the natural world, and I see in the hand of God in history and in my own life. It's not hard to see the evidence clearly when I look with the eyes of faith. When I doubt, I respond with prayer, with going to the Word. And then I can again see the evidence. It's, it's vital that we keep these things straight. The source of our faith is God's grace, not evidence. The seed of our faith is the word of God, and the fuel for our faith is the Holy Spirit. Evidence is helpful, yes, strengthens and confirms the faith that God gives us. So having his faith strengthened by the evidence of the timing of his son's healing here, the official now explicitly transfers his faith from simply believing in the word of Christ to believing in the person of Christ. It's interesting that John concludes this section by telling us this is now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. The first sign was turning water into wine. Interestingly, these are the only two signs in John's gospel that are explicitly numbered for us. Now John goes on to give five, uh, some would argue six uh, more signs, but they're not numbered. We're not told specifically, this is sign number three now, this is sign number four, and so forth. So what's the significance of these two? Well, the first sign shows the supernatural joy and abundant life that Jesus brings, and the second here shows the victory over death that Jesus brings. The first sign is a sign of the bringing of life, while the second sign is a sign of the defeating of death. All of Jesus' signs can be seen this way, either as an abundant provision of life or as the overthrow of the reign of death. They fall into one of those two categories generally. The feeding of the 5,000 that we're going to be seeing. It's another sign of abundant provision of life. So in these two life and joy signs, Jesus provides both an abundance of wine and bread. Something for us to think about even as we prepare for the Lord's Supper next week, right? In the victory over death, or the reverse the curse signs, we would say, Jesus heals the official sick son, saving him from, from death before he died. Heals an invalid in chapter 5. We're going to get there. A man born blind in chapter 9. The culminating sign of this second type is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Both types of signs are pointing to, check this out, the ultimate final sign, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Both types of signs pointing to the final and ultimate sign, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is both the final defeat of death and the bringing in of eternal life and joy. So it looks like this. The gospel is bringing life from death. And once we've, once we've discovered new life in Christ, then we become more like him through sanctification and experience the fullness of joy that he offers us.
through his life. So the first two signs are numbered because they are the two major types of signs that will lead us in the end to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hinge pen of our Christian faith. So as we enter into a time of decision, I'm going to ask that you bow your heads with me for just a moment. Close your eyes. This is really a time of response for us as a church family, a time of decision. There's no way that I could possibly know where each and every one of you are in your spiritual journey. Maybe you're an individual who's been wrestling with your faith for a long time. And up until now, you're... Your connection with Jesus has been more like that of the Galileans. Like you're into Jesus because of some of the things that Jesus can do. But you have yet to turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Maybe up until now it's been like you want Jesus to be a part of your portfolio where you can rely upon him, call upon him in your time of need. But really, it's more about you. You want to remain at the center of your universe. And that's why you will often find yourself discouraged and disillusioned when God doesn't perform the way you think he should perform. Doesn't answer your prayers the way you think he should answer your prayers. Because you want a God who is formed in your own image and is at your beck and call. So it may be time for you to once and for all finally turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ. Not because of all the things that you think he may do for you, but because of who he is. And the relationship that he desires to have with you through faith in him. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that in your word we can often see examples of ourselves. We find ourselves looking into the mirror of your word. Lord, I even myself look at this text and I reflect upon a time in my life when I was discouraged and disillusioned with, with God, with you. I was experiencing things in my life that I didn't think were fair. And so in my mind, you weren't performing the way that I thought you should. Lord, in the midst of all that, I thank you for grace. I thank you for saving grace. I thank you for faith, true faith, genuine faith. So I pray that you continue to work in each of our hearts and lives. I pray for the one today that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, whether they're here in the room or they're watching online, that you would, in your sovereignty, in your grace, you would draw those individuals to yourself by your Holy Spirit and through your word.
Lord, help us to trust you, to trust you knowing that you are all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing. And even in the midst of life's difficulties and challenges, when we don't see it, we can trust knowing that you ultimately are working all things, ultimately for your glory and for our good. We love you. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.